Hey, everybody. Welcome to Prefer Not To, a weekly sometime cocktail hour. Always cocktail hour. With your hosts, Josh and Kate. As always, I am not Kate. And as always, I'm not Josh. Every week, Kate and I make a cocktail, talk about the cocktail, watch a movie or two, talk about those movies, then move on and fill out the rest of an hour with... (laughs) Miscellaneous love. Yes. With miscellaneous love. All in less than an hour, which is the important point. So, Kate... What are we drinking and or watching this very week? <laughs> All right. This week we're having Cosmos. <laughs> Cosmopolitan. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. And we watched... Um, was that Paul Lind? No, it was just my... Girls, we're having Cosmos. Gotcha. Voice. And then we're going to go shop for Manolo Blahniks. Um, our movie that we watched was 8mm, starring Nicolas Cage and Joaquin Phoenix and... James Gandolfini, sort of, mm-hmm. and Carolyn Keener. Mm-hmm. Catherine. Catherine. All right. So what's in a Cosmopolitan? Cosmopolitan is made up of two parts vodka, often. It's made up of two parts vodka, often citrus flavored, like, you know, citron or something. One part triple sec, preferably Cointreau. Uh, they recommend against using just bottom of the shelf triple sec. 2.5 parts of cranberry juice and one part lime juice, uh, hopefully fresh squeezed, although the first iteration of it was with roses mm-hmm. so we're gonna go into the history of the drink in just a moment but mm-hmm. as always kate we got to move into our standard disclaimers yep standard disclaimer number one neither kate nor i is an expert on cocktails or movies so we will probably screw up your favorite cocktail and speak illiterately about your favorite movie we apologize for that and hope that you write us a letter when we do second alcoholism is a serious disease like gangrene or tinnitus and if you had those problems you'd go see a physician so you probably should see a physician if you have a problem with drinking especially if you have gangrene ew that's true (laughs) you know why i picked those um uh, no no i don't the uh fourth of july is coming up and i want all of our listeners to celebrate a safe and sane fourth of july by not blowing their fingers off or causing themselves serious hearing damage with the use of fireworks. Oh, see, you said gangrene in the context of Americana, and I just think Civil War. Well, sure, I'm just saying, so. you know, wounded limbs lead to ne- necrosis, and bad things go from there. So True. On your 4th of July, first of all, fireworks and alcohol don't mix. And I mean that in a couple of ways. A, you don't want to put alcohol on your fireworks. <laughs> but B, you shouldn't be drinking while you're using fireworks. Nope. Which I know is going to fall on deaf ears, but uh, there it is. Maybe that's because they have tinnitus. Right. I think it's tinnitus, but uh, I think people, I think the the deal is because it's actually tinnitus, I-T-U-S. It's not an itis, it's not an inflammation, but people have sort of made that. And that is, of course, the persistent ringing in your ears caused either by uh, organic injury or uh, disease. Any number of things can cause you to have persistent tinnitus. Most people, it goes away after a few weeks, but a very sad few live the rest of their lives with a ringing in their ears persistently. But wouldn't that become the norm after a while? Supposedly you get used to it. Yeah, um, that sounds terrible. It does sound pretty. Ask Pete Townsend. I will the next time we run into him at the supermarket. Which is frequently because, you know, he, like us, is uh, constantly buying Rose's Lime Juice. And it's really awkward because he's always doing the windmill thing in the middle of the produce aisle. Right. And, and they just, we have a very displays small... go everywhere. Right. And it's like, well, you could at least do that, like, in the meat section where it's padded so nope. that you're not going to hit it. But no, it's always right there in the glass juice bottles. You can't tell him a thing. No. That's, well, he can't hear you. Well, also true. Yeah. So tell me, what's in a Cosmopolitan? A Cosmopolitan is vodka, triple sec, 
excuse me, not triple sec, because God help you if you use plain triple sec. Mm-hmm. It is uh, vodka, Cointreau, lime juice, and cranberry juice. And how did this beverage come to exist? So this is actually a really interesting story, much more interesting than I thought it was going to be when I first started researching it. Yeah, to me, it just seems like one of those cheesy 80s drinks. Yeah, well, so several bartenders claim to have invented the Cosmopolitan, mm-hmm. as is true with most drinks. Uh, the go-to story, the official story, cites Cheryl Cook, who is the bartender at, or was the bartender at The Strand in Miami in South Beach. Is this our first drink uh, allegedly invented by a lady? Yeah, I think so. Hot's off, ladies. Who invented the beverage as a way to make a martini for women, meaning that mm-hmm. in the 1980s, apparently the martini made a big comeback. Mm-hmm. And yuppies and everyone, were, including men and women, were trying to drink martini. But she noticed that many women did not like the martini and were just ordering it for the status. Mm-hmm. So she did something that would be served in a similar class. Yeah, the three martini lunch was a classic staple from the old Mad Men days. Yeah. So she happened to have a free sample of Absolute Citron, which had just been introduced on the market from her rep. And um, this is how she says it. She says, circa 1985 or 1986, the martini had just made its comeback. Women were ordering martinis just to have a drink in that classic glass. Many women did not really like a true martini or the new age martini, the vodka martini. What overwhelmed me was the number of people who ordered martinis just to be seen with a martini glass in their hand. It was on this realization that gave me the idea to create a drink that everyone could palate and was visually stunning in that classic glass. This is what the Cosmo is based on. Yeah, the thing I love about that is that it's very... um it's very 80s, like postmodern, because we're reappropriating a shape for the mm-hmm. beverage. It doesn't have anything to do with the drink itself. That The most important thing is the shape, the the uh, appearance of it. Plus, it has that 80s pastel-y color to it. Right. So she made it pink to be more visually uh, appealing mm-hmm. with the cranberry juice. Um, it's interesting because... It also explains to me why they serve it in a martini glass. Yeah. So there's a couple other people. Like There's a bars in Provincetown always claim that they did it first in the 1970s. Um, and that's just gay men wanting to take credit for everything. <laughs> um, it's funny, though, because Cheryl Cook is something of an urban legend. People say that, oh, well, she's the one who invented the, mar- the, the Cosmo. But if you ever try and track her down, the furthest you usually get is, oh, she's somewhere in Miami or she's somewhere in San Francisco. But I thought you just had a quote from her. Right. And so that's what I'm saying is there were most of the articles about the history of the Cosmo um, that, feature a kind of how I found this woman story because Ah. it took a really long time. She's still an urban legend on the internet. There's pictures of her. Well, urban legend implies that she does not exist. Well, there's pictures of her on the internet, and every time it seems that she communicates with someone who's writing an article, it's through email. Mm -hmm. So how do you know? She's like the cocktail garbo. I just think that's that's kind of funny to me. Yeah. I mean, family-wise, the Cosmopolitan is related to the kamikaze, which is a shooter instead of an actual cocktail. The kamikaze is vodka and a drop of lime juice. Cook apparently added a splash of cranberry for color, and uh, then she ended up serving it in a bigger glass with the citron vodka, Mm -hmm. which made a big difference with the lime juice. Mm -hmm. So the reason that it's not in a family like with the sea breeze and whatnot is that it's not doesn't have a lot of cranberry juice in it. Well, yeah, the the cosmopolitan of today because people keep messing with the proportions, but the one with today that is most popular today does have a lot more, Um, and is much more like you know the. Salty dog, not the salty dog, the sea breeze. Yeah, or the or the Cape Cotter. Right. So, like I was going to say, it is also in the family of the Cape Cotter, which is vodka and cranberry juice. And Cosmos, Cosmos today are made with vodka and Cointreau. The original recipe did not have that. And this was a tweet by bartender Toby Cecchini mm-hmm. in 1987-ish, who was working at the Odeon in Manhattan, uh, where he was introduced to Cook's version and decided to spice it up a little bit with real lime juice and triple sec, hmm. or adding Cointreau. 
The so name, real lime as opposed to roses. Right. Freshly squeezed. Mm-hmm. The name itself, Cosmopolitan, is kind of based off of a gin cocktail from the 1930s, which is gin and raspberry liqueur and lime and a couple other things. The idea behind the 1930s being that it was such a cosmopolitan drink because all the ingredients were so worldly or something. Was it a specific um, raspberry liqueur or just um, any? I think it was just raspberry. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's another story that when uh, Ciccini served it for the first time, the first person who drank it said, well, that is cosmopolitan. Uh-huh. <laughs> and that's where the drink came from. Not really sure. I do know that the magazine named itself after the cocktail, apparently. Really? But I feel like the, the magazine, co- the magazine has, has to have been around for exactly. Longer. That's what I thought too. It's a Hearst publication. It's yeah. been around forever. It's been around since at least the '60s. I'm pretty sure. Uh, that, that, although, who knows? And of course, as everyone knows, it was brought to pop culture prominence in the 19 late 1990s, early 2000s show on HBO, Sex and the City. Right. I think before that, it was pretty much associated with gay men. Yeah, I would say, yeah. Well, apparently, so apparently it was served to, um, it somehow made the journey from Miami to -hmm. New York to Provincetown and along the way ended up in a club in New York where Madonna in like 1995 or 96 started liking them a lot. So they kind of rose in the club scene. How do we get from gay men to Madonna? I don't know. It's such a, it's such a, I, I couldn't tell you. The, the road lost to the is, midst of time. Yeah. Hey, do you want to talk about our movie? Yeah, sure. Amanda just buzzed me. Meshack Taylor died from de- Designing Women. Oh. Yeah. That's sad. Is that Julia Sugarbaker? No. It's the guy. Oh, the guy. Oh. The black guy. Oh. I just think of that 30 Rock episode where Liz stays up all night watching that Designing Women marathon. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's a funny show, but... Hey, so what did we watch this week again? We watched... I've forgotten it already. I tried <laughs> How? really hard. How could you? Is it 98? 99, I think. 99's um, Joel Sodenberg. Joel, Joel Sodenberg. Joel Soderberg? No, that's Steve, Steven Soderberg. Joel Schumacher. Schumacher. <laughs> One of them is an artist. <laughs> One of them puts nipples in the bat suit. Okay. Well, Joel Schumacher. The, sorry. So this week we watched 1999's... Eight millimeter, mm-hmm. directed by Joel Schumacher, mm-hmm. starring Nicolas Cage, mm-hmm. Catherine Keener, mm-hmm. Joaquin Phoenix, James Gandolfini, and um, the, the uh, Peter Stormare. Peter Stormare, uh, yeah. Who else is in it? Norman Reedus for half a oh, second. Oh yeah, Norman Reedus in a very like bit <laughs> role. Yeah. So that and uh, yeah. So Josh, you want to? There we go. All right. And you know, just chime in if I start screwing up our summary. I've already forgotten what the hell his name was. It was Will something, right? His character. Oh, his last name was Will something. Let me pull that shit up. This tells you, by the way, how what an impression the character <laughs> made on me. This is also one of those weird movies where, like, the title is not aren't words. You know, like the like numbers. Yeah, okay with that. Or like because it's just eight mm. Oh, you mean like so seven and? Yeah, you know what I'm saying. Like where it's just. Yeah, yeah I think that's it was a trend in the late '90s of doing like strange typography in your movie titles. It also ends up right next to Eight Mile on the blockbuster shelf. If those were things that existed anymore. <sighs> His character is Tom Wells. Tom Wells. Okay. I knew it was. Right. And he, he uses a lot of pseudonyms. But yeah. his real name was. Because Wells, it's like he's Orson Wells because it's a cinema thing. See, because there's movies in it. I don't. Okay. I, I feel. I don't think that's what they were going for. I feel but... sure that that was conscious. Okay. Okay. So he's a private investigator. We see him doing his job at the beginning of the movie. He's doing some sort of uh, adultery mission for a senator who's hired him. So we've established that he has 
a somewhat Tony clientele and is doing a decent business. But he also has a wife and new child at home, wife played by Catherine Keener. Upon returning home from this trip, he sprays himself down with uh, Banaka mm-hmm. to disguise his smoking. So I guess that's meant to say that he's a guy who keeps secrets from his family or something. That's a weird thing that never really went anywhere. Like for the first part well, of the Well, I think movie... it's, it was meant to play into his, and I use this word loosely, loosely. arc as oh, a character. Okay. All right. But I don't understand how it was supposed to. Anyhow. And we'll get to some of the problems with this movie as we, but that's one of them is that his character does things in the second half of the movie that I don't think the first half of the movie uh, even began to prompts him yeah. to do to, to his character. Anyhow, so he receives a phone call uh, from a mysterious client who wants to see him as soon as possible, and it turns out it's an extraordinarily wealthy woman. He goes and visits a big. Big fancy mansion. Uh, Miss Christian. Yeah. Yes, Mrs. Christian, a widow whose husband has recently died. She, uh, after his death, has discovered in a secret safe in his home a 8mm home movie of what appears to be a young girl being murdered, mm-hmm. she says. And she and her not in any way suspicious or obvious candidate for being the bad guy attorney, Anthony Held, mm-hmm. have hired him to... Uh, then hire him with no limit on his budget to determine whether or not the film is real. And if the the girl, like the widow seems abnormally, well, okay, throughout the movie, she doesn't seem to care that her husband had a snuff film in his, in his, his private, whatever. Well, I think she's more concerned about whether this one girl that she see, she's seen on film is alive. Yeah, the, everybody's motivations some, somewhat seem unclear and, and sort of change and go all over the map. At the beginning, she doesn't want to call the police because it would ruin her late husband's name. Which, by the way, you know, again, she's already committing a crime by not reporting the police. So that's... Like, it would just... It would have taken, like, a second of dialogue for her to say, I'm really ashamed of what, who my husband might have been and the way that I can make it up to this poor girl is finding out if she's well, alive. Well, I think they said that, but it wasn't, no, wasn't, uh, it wasn't well, very clearly done. So Nick Cage gets sent off to try and figure out who this one girl is. Right. <laughs> and, and whether or not world. it's good. And, and, and in the course of explaining this to him, he, he has to explain to the widow and us that, quote, what you seem to be talking about is what they call a snuff film. Mm-hmm. He explains to us that it's an urban legend, that such things don't exist, that uh, they're, they're faked and people can do wondrous things with special effects. Yeah. And, uh, but she bids him to go... Investigate the film anyway, and thus begins Nicolas Cage's Dante-like Dante descent into a entirely fictitious and imaginary underground world of pornography in the pre-internet world. Yeah, that, yeah this movie did <laughs> um, not age well. This movie, well, yeah, I mean, this movie posits this entire international underground network of manufacturers and uh, distributors of pornography who, by the way, are connected to the mainstream pornography industry and will sell things in stores. It just seemed very strange, especially, you know, as pornography has grown as a prominent business. Yeah. How it bears no resemblance to how it was conducted in this movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So to get started with, Nick Cage like says goodbye to his wife and daughter and she's his wife is all like. Why can't you tell me where you're going? How long are you going to be gone? You just got back from your last job. And he's like, I know, honey, but I love you and I love our daughter. And uh, so he flies off to Cleveland, Ohio, I think. Cleveland. Right. And just starts digging through. Uh, why did he go to Cleveland? Did he see Isn't something? Is that where the film stock was made? Yeah, I think that's what it was. Yeah. So he um, 
Analyzes that it was sold f- at this store. Yeah. Yeah. In, in, in any number, and again, this is the first in a chain of um, advancements of the plot that seem to happen not because of any actions of the character, but because the movie needs to move forward every 10 minutes or so. Yeah. I mean, Nicolas right. Cage is a character who literally, if you judge by watching this movie, being a private detective just involves going to places and being given clues about things. Right. So it starts off okay, though. I mean, like, he, he analyzes the film, which, you know, good move, figures out that it's uh, on a stock oh, right, that, isn't, that, that yeah, isn't produced anymore. He did, that was actually the only detective work that right. he did in the entire movie. So he's, he's from a stock that stopped being produced in, like, 93. 90, or 90. Yeah, 1992 or 93 or something. And so he, um, he has that to go on. He also asks the widow to go through her husband's financial records and see if there's anything from 92 or 93 that's out of the ordinary. Then he goes to Cleveland. Then it just... All and starts digging down. through the missing records files uh, in Cleveland. And we know that he's doing this because it has several uh, dissolves in place to him looking ever more bleary, digging through files. And finally, uh, happens to be given a clue. I mean, discovers this girl. It, yeah. Right. This girl who looks exactly like the girl in the movie who was from Fayetteville, North Carolina. He then proceeds to Fayetteville, North Carolina, which looks suspiciously like every other place in this movie. Uh, some sort of rust belt town. Yeah, it does uh, not look anything like North Carolina whatsoever. Spo- spoilers, folks. Uh, yeah, Fayetteville is not a a rust belt, uh, <laughs> green mountained, uh, berivered, hilly industrial town in the American Middle Atlantic. Nope. No. So he tracks down the uh, the girl's mom. Right. And talks to her about her going missing and like you know what she told the cops. He claims to be doing an audit for the feds. Yeah. Of missing children reports. Uh, in the process of going throughout her house. Well, she says, yeah, she says I had trouble with her. Uh, she was always troubled. And then the day she disappeared was the day after I hit her for having a fight with her stepdad. Um, and she says, I've always worried that because I hit her, that's why she ran away. Uh, so in the course of being in this house, Nicholas Cage discovers a hidden secret diary that the police apparently had not discovered for some reason or other, probably because they weren't in a movie. Yeah. So they pull it out. It's a diary. Tip to investigators. If you want to solve crimes, be in a movie. Also, go in the basement. Right. Because he found it in the basement. There's a piece of paper in the very back of the diary that's torn out, and it's her goodbye note to her mom saying, Mom, you know, I've fallen in love with this boy. We're going to go to L.A. He's going to become a movie star. I'm going to become an actress. And, you know, you know, it's not because you hit me. They go out of their way to say that. Right. Um, I'm yeah, just tired. I know you think I am running away because I'm you're just tired right. of this two bit town. And so that's what he has to go on. So he knows who the boyfriend is. Warren now, something. Warren. Mm-hmm. And goes to see Warren's dad who that owns. Oh, because in the letter she said in the thing she said. You know, his dad who owns the garage right. <laughs> over on, you know, whatever over on, street. Over at Exidy such and such place. So right. Conveniently freeing yeah. Nick Cage from the obligation to even write his clues down that he's discovered so because someone has done that for him. Nick Cage. Which, by the way, that's not the first time this happens in the movie. No, it's not. Not at all. I mean, not this, the last time. Nick Cage goes to the garage and talks to the dad who lets it slip that his son is in uh, jail. The Fayetteville lockup. The Fayetteville lockup for eight months on a break, breaking yeah. and entering. So then he goes to see him. Turns out he's played by Norman Reedus. Hey, in Norman Reedus. Right. A much younger Norman Reedus. Without the guns. <laughs> yeah. Not nearly as sexy. Who lets him know, like, no, we didn't actually go to Cal... We didn't actually go to California, or they did. <gasps> um, and then he came back. Yeah, I think he came back, and uh, last, she left him. Yeah, the last... They they were out in California together, and she mm. he doesn't know what happened to her. He came back to Fayetteville and got put in prison. Mm-hmm. So Meanwhile, Nick Cage gets back to the mom. The mom is very... Grieving, but also very clearly wants to 
get busy with Nick Cage. So I guess he's supposed to be being tempted because his wife is being somewhat Catherine Keener is being somewhat standoffish about his career, which I didn't I understand. It been a, well, I think it would have been a better movie if they did actually sleep together. There's no, yeah, I don't. There's no investment in the Catherine Keener character or his kid. They just exist for him to like call on the phone, right? And montages. Um, and then there's sort of a half hearted attempt later in the movie to put them in peril, but it's not even really a serious yeah. thing. So then he goes out to Hollywood, which is played by another part of central uh, Pennsylvania, mm-hmm. but you can tell that it's Hollywood because it has a uh, yellow filter tent. Yeah. yeah. Over everything. It's, and there's it, people with tattoos and piercings walking around. It's crazy. That's how you know. So uh, he goes to the he goes one. to Los Angeles and uh, <laughs> goes to like, and this is another example of the detective work done by Nicolas Cage being somewhat perfunctory and yet oddly successful. Uh, he goes to, just starts driving down the road where prostitutes are looking for prostitutes. And then he goes to a pornography store. The one. The one. The one in L.A. Right. It just happens to go to the, exactly the right pornography store and starts asking the clerk, played by Joaquin Phoenix, Oscar winner Joaquin Phoenix. Oscar winner Nicholas Cage. we got a lot of talent in this movie. Gavin Keener's a great actor. Peter Stormare is hilarious. James Gandolfini. James Gandolfini's a great actor, you know? <sighs> and yet. So he starts asking this guy questions about the porn uh, biz. About the porn business. And, uh, you know... <laughs> uh, <laughs> And and this is where the movie begins to portray the world of pornography in in as some sort of how would you describe its vision of the world of illicit pornography? It's like this underground. It it posits that there are just thousands of thousands of people like gathering at these swap meets. Yeah, that to meet to buy all sorts of uh, illicit, and that you can get at it simply by going into a regular adult bookstore and saying, you know, I want the good stuff. It's like going to the moonshine place. You know, I want you. I want the good moonshine. I want the apple pie stuff. So he 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 hires he hires Joaquin Phoenix for like five hundred dollars for a day to be his like guide right. into the he world knows, of porn. Because he knows he knows how porn works. So Joaquin Phoenix is like okay, and takes him to all these like clubs and like and yeah, or like and not y- even garage sales or like S and M club where like you know everyone's dancing in like leather gear. Almost none of this ends up having to do anything with the plot, right? Yeah, except but, to establish that there's this giant subculture, of, and that snuff films are really hard to find, and, and no one some of them are fake, that, and that and that some of them are fake, and no one admits that it is real. Uh, he goes to like this weird garage sale kind of thing at night in an alley where people just have like their tables out in front of their vans labeled with like. Girl on girl, XXX, animals, like these different subgenres of of, uh, – Yeah, he says it's been around for a few years and it moves from place to place. I'm like, this is a huge like flea market type situation. Yeah, well, so they go to two of these. The first one is a predominantly Hispanic Right, and he asks for las películas de snuff. He goes up to this guy who kind of looks like Danny Trejo but isn't Danny Trejo and goes – Hola, tienes películas de snuff? And the guy's like, eh? Películas de snuff. And then, and then Nicolas Cage is like, you know, películas de snuff. And then the guy goes, hey, uh, gringo, cabrón. wants to snuff. Ay, cabrón, vámonos. Like, you know, and right. he and his buddies come out. Because there's, and that's meant to establish, there's something that even these sleazos won't handle. 
So then Joaquin Phoenix takes them to another. Oh, and, and here's like part of it. And this may just be because my sensibilities have been dulled by living in the age of the Internet. But all of the stuff that's like supposed to be really shocking pornography yeah. that they it's just like like there's one of like a, a nurse doing Giving bondage an and enema. then gives a guy an enema. And we're supposed to be like that is incredibly, you know, it's like you, we live in a post two girls, one cup universe. Yeah. There's this nurse that has her. It's a sexy nurse outfit, but her boobs, she has boob holes cut out. So her boobs are just out. This guy is like tied up on a table and she's like spanking him and all of a sudden she gives him an enema. And that's supposed to be, like, the most Dumped. shocking. Oh. So they go to this other underground place. Right, which is even bigger. Which is even bigger and even weirder. And they go. he goes up to this one guy who And they have, like, little cardboard labels on stuff. Yeah. Like, one of them says kids. Yeah, and, like, one of them says... Uh, so he goes with this one that says, like, you got the hardest no, stuff. No, it says way beyond XXXXXXX. And so the guy's like, what do you got? And... Uh, it got Nick. extreme rape. It, what he's he like, says, extreme rape. bondage rape films. Some sick shit. And he's like, I want five, get one free. Or something like that. And Nick Cage is like, well, I, uh, I want the hard, I want harder stuff. And he's like, baby, there isn't anything harder than this. And so Nick Cage is like, yeah, you got any snuff? I got money, and I'm willing to pay for it. And uh, the guy goes, hey, man, fuck you. Get out of here. Right. And kicks him out. So right. they're kind of back to square one. Like this right. this had nothing. It didn't do anything for the right. plot. And then, well, no, but then they go to one more and they find a bunch of stuff. They find some alleged snuff films. Which are fake. Which are fake. Yeah. Right. Uh, and, and at one point, Joaquin Phoenix says, man, if we can't find it here, we can't, we can't find it anywhere. This is the sickest shit you'll ever see. Shit films, hermaphrodites, harder than hardcore. <laughs> and um, eventually they end up, so they, they've kind of exhausted their options. They end up going to New York for some reason. Well, um, no, no, no. Hold okay. on. So, um, oh, and then, so then we get a little backstory between Nick Cage and Joaquin Phoenix where we learn Joaquin Phoenix is an aspiring musician. But man, when you work around these perverts in the porn biz, it gets to you. The devil, when you dance with the devil, the devil changes you, he says, around this parade of losers. Um, and then, oh, no, here's this. OK, so we've had 10 minutes since Nicolas Cage, uh, a fact stumbled its way into the movie. Nicolas Cage then proceeds to search uh, missions in Los Angeles oh, yeah. for runaway children. It just happens that he goes to exactly the right mission. And the first nun that he talks to is like, yes, I remember this girl from like three years ago or whatever. I'm sorry, here's the line that Joaquin Phoenix keeps saying. If you dance with the devil, the devil don't change. The devil changes you. Man. Which I guess is some sort of bargain basement Nietzsche. I don't know. So yeah. they, yeah, they go to So this they go to, they just happen to go to exactly the, the right mission. mission. Talk right. to the one nun who one recognizes nun. her. Right. Uh, gives her his suit, gives Nicolas Cage her suitcase and says, can you please return this to her mother right. or something? I found like this suitcase and it just, I don't know if you know this model of suitcase, but it has a clue pouch. And so he opens it and rifles through it, and... And there's a clue pouch in it, and I'm in the clue pouch... It says something about Colonel Mustard. There's a piece, and... of, right, there's a piece of paper that says uh, Hollywood Wax Museum, and it has a phone number on it. Oh, yeah. Right. Like, again, another example of where Nicholas Cage does not even have to write his clues down. The movie... This movie is like a, this is like a, it's like the tutorial level of a noir movie <laughs> because like mm-hmm. Nicolas Cage couldn't possibly fail because the plots, the things just keep falling into his lap. Yep. So he goes to, he follows up the the clue and ends up figuring out that there is a porn, not dealer, but yeah. auditioner. It's like called like. Yeah, uh, star again, fi- right. celebrity film. He's an agent. He's like a talent. He's agent. an agent. He's played by and James again, James Gandolfini. Yeah. Uh, Nicholas Cage walks in. He's like, hey, man, have you ever seen this girl? And like, Gandolfini. And again, he just happens to go to 
The one, right? Yeah. Well, he has the phone number. Also, James Gandolfini has like posters on his wall of incredibly <laughs> fake-looking porn movies. One of which just has the title "Anal." Anal. Like that's the name of the movie is Anal. So he shows uh, James Gandolfini the picture. James Gandolfini's like, I ain't never seen her before. You know how much pussy comes through here. But right, Nicolas but he, Cage knows that he he's looks, lying. Right, he looks disturbed. And so he buys a space across the street. From this one first guy that he yeah talked to. And bugs his phone in the middle of the night and then sits there and listens to him make his phone calls. And he's making phone calls. And at one point, and this is another one of these, like, this is not how pornography works moments. James Gandolfini takes a call from, like, the owner of an adult bookstore who says, yeah, that movie you made is awful and you better make some harder shit or we're not going to sell <laughs> it anymore. Customers are returning Customers it. are bringing it back. It's like, I don't, I'm really pretty confident that porn has never worked that way. Yeah. So eventually Nicolas Cage gets so brash and so convinced that James Gandolfini has something to do with it. He calls him anonymously. It's like, I know you did it. I know you killed her. What did you do? Also during this time, though, he's not taking phone calls from his wife, which is meant to indicate how porn is changing him. So, But which I said to you, he could just as well have been like a doctor who was working too hard. He's working too hard on his his evidence. Right. Or a construction worker who was pulling overtime shifts. Like it has nothing to do with the the porn at all. It's just he's he's working too hard. He's just gone from his wife and baby. But it's like meant to be he's dancing with the devil because of this horrible world of pornography. Yeah. So uh, James, he calls James Gandolfini, freaks him out, hangs up. James Gandolfini decides to call his partner in crime, this mysterious person in New York City, mm-hmm. and say, hey, about that thing. I think someone's on to us. Mm-hmm. And then how does he figure out who it is in New York City? Well, he he, he runs the number, I think, or he calls the number. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And it turns out the guy's name is what? Dino Velvet? Dino Velvet. Dino Velvet. He asks he, Joaquin Phoenix Joaquin Phoenix says it. he is, quote... The Jim Jarmusch <laughs> of S&M movies, uh, yeah. which I think is really unfair to Jim Jarmusch. I mean, I'm not a big fan of Jim no, Jarmusch, but, but first of all, Jim Jarmusch doesn't look like Lemmy. Uh, yeah. But anyhow. So Nicholas Cage. It, it was about at this point that I realized we were watching the most absurd SVU episode ever. Yeah. Without internet. This is like if there, if SVU was a TV show before there was the internet. Well, it was. Well, no. I mean, even in the first season, they were had episodes where they were blaming internet. Oh, okay. It's not like every episode like it is now. But So they – Nicolas Cage and Joaquin Phoenix go to New York City to find this guy. They make an appointment with him slowly. They're going to uh, convince him because mm-hmm. they, they, he gets a forward on his cash from Mrs. Christian. Yeah, and she says she's calculated all these secret accounts and they add up to over a million dollars. So on this that, one on day, this one that right, he pulled his, her husband pulled. It was what? also at about this point in the movie that Kate and I went on a detour and discussed Goatsy, which Kate had never seen. <laughs> yep, <laughs> um, because the plot was unfolding with such inevitable predictability that we could sort of run. Away. But you know, yeah. I, again, in a post Goatsy, post two girls, one cup world, none of this, this seems this shocking. Movie seems positively quaint. Yeah. So he goes to meet up with Dino Velvet, who is played by Peter, Stor- Peter Stormare. In in the literally the only thing that I enjoyed in this movie. And who is a known associate of this guy who keeps showing up in a bunch of right, in a gimp SM, mask. S&M films. And specifically in this one snuff film is this guy in a gimp mask right. who has a tattoo on his hand that's of like a pentagram, pentagram or something. Yeah. So he goes to see him. He says, hey... I'm a big Dino, fan. I'm a big fan. I want you to make a movie for me here. Here's... You're, you know, you're a class act. Uh, you're the only one still transi- still transferring from film to video. Something like that. So he, he gives them like two thousand dollars. 
to do this thing. And he's like, I only have a couple of requirements. One, two women. One black, one white. And two, Machine has to be well, there. Because the yeah. Machine is the guy in the, the mask. The guy's name. And then Peter Stormare is like, if you want Machine, it's going to cost you he's more. He's like, I'm not sure. Do you... And again, Peter Stormare, first of all, he's got like total Lemmy facial hair. From Motorhead. Um, he's wearing like red velvet He's got like robe. a red velvet, like sort of uh, Gary Oldman in Bram Stoker's Dracula robe. <laughs> and he's like... You know, first of all, Peter Stormare already has that weird German, Danish, whatever he is, accent. Uh, but he is just so over the top. I mean, it's his. Yeah. You know, I mean, we're ta- and again, this is when I noticed and mentioned to Kate, we are watching a scene in which there is Joaquin Phoenix, uh, Nicolas Cage and Peter Stormare all in the same scene. And mm-hmm. it's just uh, there was not enough scenery in that room so... to be chewed. And at one point, Peter Stormare looks at Nicolas Cage and says, do you want to steal my secret sauce? <laughs> so they pay him. They say, like, come back. Nicolas Cage is going to get to watch them film it, this this snuff film that they're going to do or whatever it is. And so they go away from the office of Dino Velvet. You, by the way, tells... may, may remember Peter Stormare as uh, one of the killers in Fart. Far- oh, that's what he's most known for. The one so who, they... who fed Steve Buscemi into the wood chipper. Yes. So they... They leave, and then Joaquin Phoenix is, like, really excited. Nicolas Cage tells him, hey, man. You got to get out of here. It's getting too dangerous. Max? Yeah. Max California. That's the maximum amount of California you can have by law. He says, Max, you need to go back to L.A. It's getting too dangerous for you here. And he's like, but I want to help, man. And so they have this Mm. kind of heartbreaking, like, you You got to get out. It's too dangerous. You got to go back. And it's like, oh, good job, Nick Cage. You totally just obviously killed him. You just signed his death warrant. Yeah. You got to go back. You got a family waiting for you. You got a future and a career and six days until retirement or whatever. Yeah. So Nick Cage shows up at the shoot the next morning or the next day or something. Walks in. The machine is sitting on the bed. They have a bed. Dino Velvet is there with a crossbow. Mm -hmm. And he's just shooting this cross on the wall. Like literally like a cross. And then. Nicholas Cage gives a line read that made me laugh. He sees the machine sitting on the bed and he just goes, he just says, Hi, machine, love your work. (laughs) (laughs) So they're like, Nicholas Cage walks in, he says, Hello. Seems like there's obviously something up. He goes, Hey, where's the women? And Peter Stormare's like, oh, they'll be here soon. This limousine pulls up into the this abandoned warehouse. And it's James Gandolfini. And then it, it turns out it's James Gandolfini with Joaquin with, Phoenix. Right. Well, and not only that, surprise, surprise, we find the ringmaster of the entire event has been uh, oh, yeah. none other than Anthony Held. Who the was, old lady's lawyer. Yeah. Who, by the way, you will Anthony Held, the Weasley, uh, Chilton from uh, Silence of the Lambs. He's always a Weasley guy. He was in Pelican Brief. He was one of the Weasels in Pelican Brief. He was one of the Weasels in Pelican Brief. Yeah. But he's one of these guys, again, we've talked about William Atherton before. Yeah, but, yeah he's uh, one of those classic weasels. The classic 90s weasel that the minute you see him, you know he's uh, the bad guy. Kind of like Jeffrey Jones, almost. Uh, yeah, he's got that weasel about Well, I think you're just projecting. Movies. I think you're just projecting his actual no, life experience. I'm not. All right. Anyway, so they punch Nicholas Cage. He wasn't a weasel Cage. in Amadeus. He was the emperor. Was, well, okay, I, don't, I haven't seen Amadeus in a really long time. Okay. So they, like, punch Nicolas Cage and chain him up to a chair. They strap Joaquin Phoenix to the cross. Weren't you totally surprised, though, that Anthony Held turned out to be behind it? I was, yes, very much so. So Anthony Held turned out to be behind it. He, um, hit the millionaire guy at the beginning, just wanted because he had right. the money. And, and we get the first of two uh, exposition at gunpoint that we get in the, the second half of the movie as Nicolas Cage is instructed to go out to get the movie out of the car. Because they want to destroy it, and Nicholas uh, Anthony Held takes him out there at gunpoint, and while doing so, explains that he and the rich man concocted this scheme, 
and the man, the rich Mister Christian, did it because just because he could, just because he, he had could, the money. Man. Which is supposed to be chilling, but it's not at all. And none of this would have happened if you had ever given up. So they take the they take the film, they bring it back into the warehouse, they burn it in front of Nicolas Cage, then they slit Joaquin Phoenix's throat because they're bad dudes or something. And at that time, Nicolas Cage like hulks out. <laughs> Like I'm not even sure. What's... Well, no, no, no. He's 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 handcuffed to the bed. Oh, right. And he says, you know, uh, that's a how are you going to spend that million dollars? Because he An- somehow intuits no, that Anthony, Anthony Held. Anthony Held told him how much he got paid for doing. Oh, the movie. that. Oh, so he intuits that the other guys didn't because they're much out of the car, right. and he's like, yeah, How got... much did you pay to sell your soul to kill that little girl? And Anthony Held's like million dollars. What? Like you know? Well, no, but it's it, the, yeah. The idea that he didn't get that the guys who made the movie didn't get. Uh, yeah, they didn't, so split, they didn't said, split. He says, "Yeah, so how you get so because none of these people have ever seen a movie in which a captive hero gets the hero, the villains to turn on one another by mentioning how much money they're going to have to split, or never seen Treasure of the Sierra Madre, or never seen any movie in which <laughs> people argue over treasure ever." ever. Uh, he said, "Yeah, so they commenced to fighting, and who shoots who doesn't really matter." Uh, Peter Stormare shoots Anthony Held in the chest with a crossbow. Anthony Held, um, somehow Peter Stormare gets like his his throat cut, except it's like his shoulder. Like, I think maybe it's a bullet that goes like right into his artery. Yeah. um, I think Gandolfini has a gun. Nick Cage stabs the gimp, I mean the machine, in the chest. Who runs off and gets away. And then so does James Gandolfini. Uh, And then so does James Gandolfini. And really, the movie should be over here. Like, honestly, there's no reason for the movie to go on after this they could, yes. could have just had like this big climaxy thing we got another 30 minutes in this fucking movie yeah so basically what happens after that is Nicolas Cage thinks that they're going to come after his family so he calls his wife and daughter and says like hey you need to go to that place we spent 4th of July I'll tell you when I get there and she's like what's wrong why would you tell me anything and you know whatnot. he starts calling around ER offices pretending to be a, uh, ER offices so he calls around to emergency rooms pretending to be a cop and asks if, if anybody has been admitted who was a large man who has like a knife wound and finally someone tells him oh yeah sure the third hospital that he calls is like in New York fucking city <laughs> who is like and, and no, by the way pretending to be a police so officer like, hey, none of them lieutenant, demand any this is yeah. Lieutenant Smith at the 14th precinct and so the person on the other end is just like oh hey what up yeah sure we yeah. didn't have so he figures out that there has been someone some of the gimp got her whatever yeah and then um, they find out where he lives yeah he, because they had his name yeah, and he, uh, let's see, at some point, I don't even oh, remember the Oh, and then the it's, and then it's at this point at this that Catherine point. Keener says he, she's leaving him because he's too wrapped up in this case. Yeah. Which, again, this was just not in any way communicated through the things that Nicolas Cage did over no, the course of the movie. it was just there for like, a The movie list. just sort of presumes that because it has gone on an hour and a half that... You know, that Nicolas Cage has become more intensely involved in the case, but it doesn't ever actually show that... You know, so it's he just, just gets more and more disgusted by the porn that he sees. But it's not even the porn that he's seeing. It's not even that shocking. Well, right. And it's not and it doesn't have anything to do with the case. No, not at all. So, yeah. <laughs> so at some point he tracks down James Gandolfini and. Well, he calls the old lady first. Right. Yeah, I don't I don't yeah. know. And then the old lady kills herself because she realized he told her that the movie was real. The old lady asks what the girl's name was. He tells her it was Marianne Matthews. He says, OK. Uh, she says, okay, that's the last you see of her. He goes out and kills James Gandolfini in the Hollywood Hills. Well, makes him drive the, to right, where they filmed it. Right. And then in the second of the exposition at gunpoint, 
James Gandolfini tells them how he killed the girl, how they set it all up, what the girl was like, how they met the girl. Like, all the stuff that Nicolas Cage could have actually been investigating over the course of the movie, the movie just tells us. It drives yeah. me nuts. This movie is the worst movie. I think possibly the worst movie I've ever seen in terms of um, – not, not in terms of – a mystery that the movie do- is not in any way explained by the actions of the detective oh. character. It's just told to us by other characters. Right. So he ends up, he calls, he calls Marianne Matthews's mom for permission to kill James Gandolfini. Right. Essentially, that's right. To, for, for permission to murder James Gandolfini. And her mom is like, you know, tells her, this is the moment her mom's in bed, tells her at this specific moment, yeah, your daughter's dead. She's not coming You also back. get to see James Gandolfini briefly fillet a gun. Oh, I missed that part. Yeah. Um, and the mom is like, why are you telling me this? Yes, you have my permission. Yes. And so then he goes in and he kills James Gandolfini. Right. He also tracks down the gimp machine. Yeah, the machine. George Anthony Higgins. Who lives. Which was not one of the Higgins boys in Gruber's, although I thought it was. Who lives with his mom, his elderly mother, who complains to him like Nick Cage is spying on them. And the mom is like, I wish you'd come to church with me. And he's like, no, ma. Right. Goes in. Kills machine. Well, no, he's got a vinyl. First of all, one of the only stylistically interesting scenes in the movie is he's got he's, the kid's apparently a vinyl freak, so he's got a Danzig record playing, and the record stops. So you hear it sort of skipping over and over again as Nick Cage goes through this silent house, which I thought was a little interesting. Um, so uh, he finds the guy who's played who is Terry Bullfloor on True Blood. Oh, I didn't. But at the point being, he's just nobody we've ever met. He's just a guy. He's which just I a, was he's a good just, He's just a bald guy. Yeah. And so they like wrestle. They like you know get. They end up outside of the house, and it's raining. And he's like, "Why did you do it? Why did you do it?" And he's like, "You know, my dad didn't rape me. My mom didn't hit me. I just like doing it. Like something like that." Mm-hmm. And he's like, "He's like, I, do you think I need a reason? I just really like." killing people like or whatever he said like something yeah. along the lines it's just kind of like some people are just bad right. like they're just born bad and then uh he dies it was a knife thing right or did yeah, you shoot i don't know yeah. nicholas cage yeah it was a stabby goes a stabby. to visit the widow who has killed herself overcome with shame the butler at the front door hands him two envelopes full of cash one for the family of Marion matthews and one for him he goes home to hands, Catherine Keener, who looks radiant, by the way. Yeah. Hands the money to Catherine Keener. Is like, there, that's Cindy's college fund. <laughs> like, how yeah. dare you been doubting me, bitch? <laughs> you know? Well, I mean, and and she then, really didn't. I mean, he was doing his damn job. It was you know? just, it was. It, like, if she had a problem with his job, like, that's my problem. It's like. She acted like she didn't know he was a private investigator. Right. This is what private investigators do. Yeah. You like, know? they get hired and they go off for however long for play, at a time. You know, whatever. Um, and so then he takes the money to Marianne, gives it to her. Marianne's mom writes him a letter saying, right, we get a sort of dear dissolve Mr. to X months later or whatever. Dear Mr. Willis or Wills, Wells. Yeah. Dear Mr. Wells, you know, I think that we are the only two people that ever cared about Marianne. And then the movie's yeah. over. <laughs> Which, you know, also not true because none. And, uh, you know, and if you had involved the police, they might have uh, cared yeah. at all. So, ever. Yeah. So that's, so that's the movie. <laughs> and that's eight millimeter. What did you think of the movie? Um, <laughs> what did you like in the movie? I liked the idea of like I need you to track down this person in the city underground. Right. As a MacGuffin, was, as a yeah. MacGuffin, the snuff film is a good idea. Yeah, like you know, and the idea that he, you know, I like the tension at at the beginning mm-hmm. of him with the cig. Like this is what I meant by the cigarettes not going anywhere. He stops. It stops becoming an issue like mm-hmm. halfway through the movie. He stops smoking like yeah. halfway through the movie. Here's how I know, by the way, that the Wells, the character's name Wells, being an illusion was absolutely an illusion. Yes. And here's why. The movie about um, a guy uh, tracking down details about a person's life who were first exposed to in a short film at the beginning of the oh movie. God, stop it. 
that movie's already been made, and it, it was made much better by Orson Welles. I liked the noir-ish of it. I mm-hmm. think the movie... I'm not joking, by the way. I'm t- I think that was a serious decision. In terms of like the color saturation, mm-hmm. like the color palette of the movie was really effective. That's a Joel Schumacher thing. It's I know. That, yeah, it's that, mi- it's that mid-90s uh, Joel Schumacher, Tony Scott sort of look where there's like gold haze. And, and then really, and then it's really blue and yeah. gray all of a sudden. Like that was nice. And I really liked it. I think the performances mm-hmm. did the best they could. And some of the set had. design was great, which is. But yeah, no, this is a terrible movie. This is a really terrible movie. It's awful. I liked Peter Stormare a lot because it's clear he was just, he just went ape shit. Um, yeah, I liked Peter Stormare. <laughs> um, you know, Jamie Gandolfini wasn't bad, but uh, I mean, his. I liked Joaquin Phoenix's hair. Yeah, poor Joaquin Phoenix was in a that was a horrible role for him. And Nick Cage just um this is like this movie I think was right at the cusp of Nick Cage transitioning from a respected Oscar Oscar caliber actor to guy who will go batshit for a check. Mm-hmm. Right? But mm-hmm. he's not at full on batshit, you know. <laughs> no, he's not he's not at uh Wicker Man, right? Level he's not yet. at the bees yet. Um, so, and I, <laughs> you know, but seriously, like you and I have had this discussion before because in my head, because I'm, you know, I'm a little older than you. Mm-hmm. Nicholas Cage is still sort of stuck in that great actor bin in my brain of people who turn in like really mesmerizing performances. They're mesmerizing. Who has? Well, I mean, Leaving Las Vegas is a great movie, and his yeah. performance in it is, you know. Oscar worthy like, among the great screen performances of all time, and I yeah. will defend that to anybody. I love like, that. Movie. No, I mean I'm old enough that when I grew up, Nicolas Cage was still a reputable movie star. Not like, well, I think he still is in a weird way. Not, I mean, not. I've never thought of him as like a serious actor. He's always been about action movies to me. Like, well, see, yeah, that's Con the change, Air. right? And that was a, you know, I think The Rock was the first the one that he did, and The Rock was the same year I think as Leaving Las Vegas. God, I think, I, love yeah, that movie. I, I think he's trying to pull a Liam Neeson, where you know, Liam Neeson did something like 45 movies in the last three years or something some insane number of things like that uh, but you know why right well yeah because you know he's working off his grief but yeah he said he needs to stay busy right. and stop thinking but about I'm just saying he's, and Liam Neeson has also made that transition from respected actor to guy who will go bad shit for a paycheck yeah well I don't know Josh what if you had to come up with a cocktail mm-hmm. to describe oh, this I wanted movie. to mention one other thing oh. about this movie before I get into my cocktail description, which was, it has that uh, mid to late 90s thing where, and and Gypsy Kings was used a lot for this, uh, but not in this movie, but where you use this sort of fakish world music to create, a, as part of the score, to create a oh, sense of yeah. unease, yeah. where it's like people sort of ululating in a weird, you know, vaguely foreign sound on this, on this you know what I'm talking about? Aye, like, aye, 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 right, like, constantly... Aye. Right. And um, like that is like suppose that's the music right. that he's like in a club going through looking at all dun, the porn. Dun, 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 right. And then there's someone in the background in a in a fucking like uh, penis sling and right. you know, like penis sling? I don't know. I believe the term is banana hammock. No, it was you know that guy that sold them yeah. the fake snuff who right. had that like penis Oh yeah, the guy who looked cup. like Garth from Wayne's World. <laughs> yeah, but it wasn't. Like right. you know, it was like that cup over his junk, but it had a sheath for his penis. Oh, I was not as you may suspect, I was not looking at his <laughs> In general, I like a good ten second warning on when there's gonna be male nudity. See, that's funny, because I gave you one of those. You, well, we you were made watching. good four seconds and I and I didn't trust you and it was wrong. <laughs> 
Nicolas Cage is spying on a porn set at one point, and there's a naked guy and a naked girl talking to James Gandolfini. You can just see their butts. And, you know, I'm like, Josh, we're going to see penis here. We're going to see penis. Watch out. And then Josh goes, huh? And looks up at the screen right when the guy turns yeah, around. It and it's mistake. like, penis. It was a mistake. <laughs> yeah. So, Josh. Yes. So, if, if this movie were a cocktail. What kind of cocktail would you? Well, it would have to be something that uh, left you feeling sick, <laughs> okay. first of all. And that was completely unrealistic and totally just made up for the sake of making something up. Okay. So my so. idea was one of those uh, crushed ice banana daiquiris with like six bananas in it. Oh, God. Uh, and it's like just super sweet. Uh, yeah. Served in one of those giant cups. Yeah. With like the big scooped out glasses yeah, that yeah, they yeah, serve like, them in. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so that that would be – how about you? Um, I was going to go with uh, – it's a cocktail we haven't had on the show yet, but I wanted to try it for a while now. Mm-hmm. Monkey gland, <laughs> which hold on, hold mm-hmm. on. I'm um, spoilers for future show, but the monkey gland uh, got its name from a doctor who thought you could cure male incontinence, uh, not incontinence, impotent, imp- impotence, impotence by. Oh, was that Gook Gland Brinkley? Probably. Yeah, he's a great classic quack from the 19th century. By inserting monkey testicles and trans. He was very big in putting other animals. Uh, and they still do this in a lot of weird, crazy parts of the world, but other animals, uh, endocrine glands into people's Right. Bodies. So that's where it, it, so the monkey gland is the idea that, and eventually a cocktail was made after it. So that's reason one, based on a bunk kind of myth right. about the world. Like that doesn't make any sense. Why would anybody believe it? Much like snuff films. And B, uh, it also contains absinthe. Mm-hmm. Which is like one of those things that you think you should try once, but mm-hmm. then you do and you're just like, what? Okay. Right. Kind of like this movie. Like, I felt like I needed to watch it. And then when we were done, I was like, what the fuck? You so, know, when I was in college at the UFC, uh, there were people who were making their own underground absinthe, like real absinthe with wormwood, not, not like the, the normal stuff you buy at this liquor store now. Yeah. Because my school was full of chemistry nerds who okay. like to get fucked up. So that's, that's my Okay. Idea. So if the Cosmo were a movie, Kate, and you can't say the Sex in the City movie. I wasn't going to. What movie would it be? And you can't say Sex in the City too. Um, and you can't say the Veronica Mars movie. So what I was going to say was the movie He's Just Not That Into You, huh. which was based on a book. Mm-hmm. And the book itself was based on a single line from one episode of Sex in the City. So the drink itself is very derivative at this point. Mm-hmm. It's almost saturated the market to the mm-hmm. point where everyone has their own thing. And it's kind of Sex in the City-esque, but in the worst possible way, like your girlfriend who wants to go put on their Manolos and go out to the bar and have like a Sex in the City themed bachelorette party. Yeah, I heard mixed things about that movie. I didn't see it though. Which one? Uh, he's just not in that interview. Uh, I read the book, but... Um, the book was supposedly good. It was cute. It was really good. But my point is, it's so far from what it once was. Right. This cocktail, it's so, so many layers removed. You know, it's like, so that's, it's good. that's what I was going to go with. I like that. I was just going to go with some sort of um, – because it's sweet and tart and I was just going to go with some sort of 30s uh, screwballish, fast-talking type thing because of the sweet and the tart in it together. So we'll go with 20th century oh, okay. is what we'll go with. So, <sighs> All right. Hey, did we get any letters this week? No, we did not. No, I don't think so. If you want to change that, you can write us a letter at pntcast at gmail.com. We're on the web at pntcast.wordpress.com. We're on Tumblr at pntcast.tumblr.com. If you're on Facebook, 
we are prefer not to. And you can search for us and join the little group. We post some stuff there every now and then. Yeah, we also every once in a while post pictures of our cats, yes. including Lenny, who is the official prefer not to mascot. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and we will post, uh, eventually we'll be posting episode summaries of uh, Catnap up there. Right, yeah. So uh, Josh we, and I haven't gotten to watch the first episode Yeah, we've yet. got it on the DVR. So, um, no spoilers. I, I watched like the first five minutes of it and I liked it because tonally it was not what I was expecting it was going to be. I think in the shift from Showtime to Network, they've sort of taken out, it was originally going to be a lot grittier, I think. Right, well this is still um, the pilot though. So, well, But tonally, the pilot sets the tone for the show and I think it's it's very sort of gentle. Like we said last week, it's it's sort of a monk USA characters welcome type show. It is, it is. Uh, but we'll get to the, the plot summary of the pilot next week. Uh, no letters. So uh, in lieu of that, uh, and, and this is a little different because, uh, oh, well, we got to do some catch-up news on topics of concern. First of all, uh, Beverly Hills Cop 4 appears to be officially a go for, okay. a, for prefer not to favorite uh, Eddie, Murphy. Eddie Murphy. Also, for him. Yes. Uh, also, uh, as we often remind people, get your vaccine boosters, get your kids vaccinated. I saw an article uh, just today. That the number of vaccine objectors in the country of Australia has doubled in the past decade. Uh, today, when Laura and I were walking to the store while you were, you know, out on the patio, mm-hmm. we passed the there's a CVS next door grocery store, and they had a sign outside that said "Whooping Cough Vaccinations Inside." Oh, that's good. And I was like, "Huh, good, topical, <laughs> indeed, topical." Also, and I don't mean to pat myself on the back, but this week, Mr. Gary Oldman revealed a side of himself that. Uh, <laughs> I had speculated existed before. Fuck you. Yeah. Uh, gig, I, I don't actually think he's a, a, a racist. I think he was trying really inarticulately to say something and choose, chose the worst possible example uh, of, per, of someone to stand up for. Uh, because, yeah. you know, if there's anyone who deserves the chorus of getting shouted down that they've gotten because of the horrible things that they have said in Mel this Gibson? life, it is, in fact, yeah. Mr. Mel Gibson. So. But, you know, his broader point of we live in a world where the Internet just wants to jump on anything anybody says, I think, is a valid criticism. I think it is, too. Long time going list- down my list. Say longtime listeners of the podcast may remember that Josh is of the opinion that Gary Oldman is a secret racist. <laughs> yes, I, I've on several occasions maintained that behind his facade uh, but now it's not a funny joke because I don't. Act, I never actually did think it. But now that everyone in the world thinks that that's true, I'm not going to say it anymore. At the very least, he's a racist defender. So I, I, uh, I, he's a defender of a guy he's worked with who he no, wants to you, get money you know, from. I, you know, I don't give a shit. I yeah. love Gary Oldman. I know you do. Um, what else did I have on our little list of things? Oh, I saw this article in the Guardian in the UK about how uh, you know you know EastEnders, mm-hmm. right? They're sort of it's their working class uh, soap opera. Yeah, goes on three nights a week. Apparently. A hipster bar has opened in the neighborhood on EastEnders, and The Guardian declared that the end of hipsterism. Once hipsters are on EastEnders, hipsters are over. I think, okay. I just didn't know that cocktails made you a hipster. I think it's it's like that weird Mad Men phenomenon. You know, once everyone says that cocktails had a resurgence when Mad Men premiered. I think they come and go. I think, and that's what I was going to say, too. I think the, the age of cocktails comes and goes. Yeah, you know. I mean, the 90s were all about craft beer. Uh, and then people, there was a big California wine boom about after Sideways. Yeah, exactly. You're sad about something. I just remember that Philip Seymour Hoffman is dead. Yeah, he's he's dead. Yeah. He's not coming back. Yeah, so that bugged me. It bugged me that A, I don't, you know, whatever. Just be who you're going to be, man. Stop. Why are we pointing at my cat? I didn't know he was under there. He's like a ninja. He's a cat. 
It's it's why ninjas are described as cat-like. Yeah. Well. Yeah. Oh, so um, instead of a letter this week, I was going to do a Craigslist listing because I okay. found a couple that were interesting. And before I do, I wanted to mention something, a phenomenon that I saw on Craigslist that I found somewhat uh, unsettling. You probably already know uh, that this is a thing, but uh, there are a disturbing number of people on Craigslist who want to hire women to clean their houses naked. Like butt naked? Like butt naked. Not lingerie, but like butt naked? Butt naked. Why? I'm not hiring you. Know. Well, what did you? What is the specific ad that you saw? There were several, and they were all. It, this is not. I will. I do not want to have sex with you. I just want you to clean my house while you're naked. And I think it is people who have weird fetishes about. It's a power male power thing. You know, I want a naked woman cleaning up my house. You know, it's like those people who like to eat a buffet off of a naked chick or something. Well, who wouldn't? Me. Okay. You, you would want to do that. I'm just food. Food is food. You would be. You would be exactly like me. You'd be sitting there feeling horrible for that person. Well, if they got paid to do it. Really? I mean, if they were a willing volunteer. I don't know. I've never been presented with the option to eat a buffet off of a naked lady before. Yeah. Okay. Well, if I pay you 10 bucks, can I eat dinner off of you? (laughs) No. 10 bucks is way too cheap. I don't have 10 bucks. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I like how our economies never cross. That Venn diagram has no intersection whatsoever. Um. Yeah, so there's a disturbing number of people who want their chicks to hang, clean their house naked. That's really weird. Yeah, it is weird, right? Like, that's... Do they pay the chicks? Yeah, but it's like, I, you know, like, my, my attitude would be like, I don't... You're probably not going to get your house... You're probably going to have to have another maid. Because, I mean, like, I don't think you could clean very well naked. Well, that's what I'm saying. Like, so is it the whole house or is it like, hey, I just want you to vacuum or, hey, I want you to do the dishes it and was, do yeah, the it was not. Pers- it was different ones, but it was, I just want to clean my house. I will pay you 50 bucks an hour or whatever, you know. Nice. That's what cleaning people get. I'm just saying. Nice. Yeah. Are they nothing? allowed to wear shoes? Because uh, I don't want to go into a stranger's bathroom without wearing shoes. Well, see, that's what I'm saying. I don't think you could do, like, there's a lot of shit you can't clean while you're naked. Like what? Like anything that has, like, disgusting scuzz on it. Like, you're just going to get scuzz on your naked parts. Yeah, yeah. You know? I'm just mostly concerned about the bathroom. Like having to clean a shower or right. a toilet naked. And, you know, I could I think, do dishes naked. I think that, that that is probably part of the fetish that they want to see girls handling scuzz naked. Probably. Mm-hmm. That's right. Maybe, hey, maybe you should email this person and ask them. It was not one person. That's my point. There was like a lot of people. I'm saying email them all and say, hey, I'm just curious. Uh, I don't, why? Do I need this person in my life? <laughs> no, but you're the one that's thinking about it. <laughs> You meant me. I can't get this shit out of my head. It's true. It's so, true. You know, everything like is... Like goatsy. Yeah, I was going to say, everything is goatsy to me. <laughs> like goatsy. I, I don't forget anything. <laughs> By the way, seriously, if you don't know what goatsy is, do not go looking... And I'm not joking. Do not go looking for goatsy. Okay? It's not that bad. Do not go looking for goatsy. You're like Nick Cage in 8mm when it comes to goatsy. Like, it's not that bad. It is. It is. It is that bad. <laughs> do not go looking for goatsy. If you go looking for Goatsy, Goatsy looks into you. you. (laughs) (laughs) It's like the eye of Sauron. (laughs) The all-seeing, never-blinking Goatsy. At the spire of Mount Taint. 
Okay, we don't have time for our letter now. <laughs> we seriously don't have time. I have like a whole list of other things. I was gonna, we were totally running out of time. <sighs> okay, wow, that is a wonderful note to end our show on. <sighs> uh, okay. So, just, what are we going to be drinking and watching next week? I was going to ask what what we're going to. Uh, well, watching. I think next week we're either going to watch 1975's Hard Times with okay. Charles Bronson and uh, James Coburn, a Walter Hill movie, but that's supposed to be pretty good. Okay. Or if we can get it, and I'm still trying to find it, uh, Airport 79 option colon <laughs> the Concord option colon. What's well, an ellipsis? Right. Oh. <laughs> I don't want that option on my menu. Well, it's there. The all-seeing eye. <laughs> I don't. You know what I mean? Let me, let me tell you something. I don't want that palantir anywhere near me. <laughs> you know what it reminded me of? What? No, I don't. Let's not. Let's, no, let's uh, seriously. We don't. Uh, we don't. So, uh, did you? Uh, wh- what are we going to drink next week? Um. Well, I'm getting my first big girl paycheck this oh, week. Oh, that's right. So I was thinking, aren't we, you and Laura going to go to like Bush Gardens or something? No, we're not going to go to Bush Gardens. Why not? Because um, we're not. Carowinds? Not, 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 not wet and wild. Not this week. We have to plan. I just said wet and wild within sixty seconds of talking about Goatsy. All right, fine, fine. It'll be a mystery until we announce it on Facebook. Okay. Well, as always, Kate, I enjoyed spending some time with you. We apologize for the delay but we've adjusted our production schedule so we're gonna be coming out on tuesdays now instead of thursday ish like we used to you can um a blame me because i have a different work schedule and kind of underestimated my ability to be funny after a work day and b (laughs) blame josh you're overestimating it still b blame josh because he has just recently taken up playing the ukulele and can't be bothered to do anything but uh i think that is a overstatement (laughs) just kidding i also have been uh Napping a lot, but whoa! What the crap is? Is this the final countdown again? No, it's more Europe. What the crap? What the hell? I thought that was your ringtone for a second. No, I was too. No, it was uh, our pre-show ritual was listening to the final countdown today and poking each other. Yes, and poking each other. So, as always, I have loved spending time with you, the listeners, and we love that you listen to us, and we hope that you will do so again next week. So, thanks a lot for listening to us. And uh, like Josh said, thank you for listening. All right. Do you want to steal my secret sauce? (laughs) 